Good morning, church. It's always a pleasure to be with you. If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Tipito. And if you're a member, know that we've been praying for you guys. Let us know how we can continue to pray for you guys. Uh, we want to continue to do that, so please let us know. Um, also, we will be having a foundation class will begin. That will begin the first Sunday in November. So if you would like to be a part of the foundation class, um, it will be in uh, Building A. That's where we have our Sunday school, and we'll have basically the directions, the classroom for you to be a part of. So it will be at 9.30 um, in the morning. So we'll have more announcements on that. So please, if you're interested in being a part of the foundation class, you can come and be a part of that. Uh, thanks for the worship team. Thank you, Stephen, for reading the text. There is just power when God's people read the Bible. This is why we do this here. You know, I can come up here and give my opinion, but at the end of the day, we want context. So as Stephen is reading, there is even great power in the reading of the Word of God. So praise God for His Word. The title for today's sermon is, I, I, I did a, a brief change of the title. Um, it's the ministry of a faithful minister. And as I was doing my last review, after I did my PowerPoint, everything was done and praying through the text, I'm like, wow, this is a powerful sermon on the ministry of a faithful minister, the ministry of a faithful minister. We, we've heard of many ministers perhaps who have failed tremendously. They started off well, and then eventually they fade off because of a, a moral collapse, right? Um, maybe, maybe because of the, the love for money, or, or maybe because they were uh, found in some kind of sexual issues, right? And, and then we look at these men and we say to ourselves, man, God was blessing them tremendously, but because there is great failure, that's what we remember. And a lot of times with people, what they do because of ministers like that when they fall, their faith also collapsed as well because their faith was only in this minister and not God. And don't get me wrong, it is important to have good examples before us, but our ultimate example is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful for faithful men and women who love our Lord Jesus Christ and have lived that good life, right? The good life of obedience. Now, if we observe very carefully... In Scripture, a lot of these faithful leaders and great leaders, right before they leave, this is their last will and testament, they would basically go to the people and share with the people about their love for the people, their love for God, and they will ask the people to continue to serve God. We see this also in the life of Moses. Moses, right before he died, he commanded the people to serve God. Like, I have served you faithfully, now you must serve God. That was Moses' final words. And then his successor, Joshua, did the same thing. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua told the people, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether you will serve these false gods or you will serve the true God of Israel. And he says to them, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is Joshua's last word. The Apostle Paul had his last will and testament as well. And 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. As a matter of fact, many historians believe Paul was beheaded by Nero 
after he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. And in that book, you can sense the intensity, his last will and testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My time of departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearance. And here, Paul is writing concerning his last will and testament. And we see exactly, as a good minister of the gospel, Paul continued to point to Jesus. Point to Jesus. This morning, I want us to see the life of Samuel, the last words of a great minister by the name of Samuel. So from chapter 1 through 12, the narrative has been all about the life of Samuel. We see the birth of Samuel, a great miracle. His mother, Hannah, was barren. She cried to the Lord, Lord, give me a son. Not just because of her emotional scars, but primarily because of the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. God, give me a son and I'll give him right back to you so that he can help. Israel. What an amazing truth. And then in chapter 2, we see this young boy, Samuel, is so different than the sons of Eli. They were supposed to be the priests. They were supposed to be the judges. They were supposed to lead the people. But even as a young boy, we find that Samuel was in love with God. He obeyed God. He pursued the things of God, right? Then later on when Samuel, he led the people to repentance and then he got older. And when he got older, the people went to him and said, give us a king, demanding a king. The Lord says to Samuel, give them what they ask for because I will use this very request to teach them a great lesson. Now Samuel is even older. Friends, he's about to die. So he goes up to the people And he tells the people, this is what I have done. This is all the ministry that I have given. The Lord worked mightily in and through me. And this is my last will and testament. So please listen. Listen to our dear brother Samuel. Listen to his words. And his words are not just for the Israelites in that time, but his words are for us today. Listen to what he's saying to you on how you ought to serve God. I've been listening. All week I've been listening. And all week I'm tremendously convicted by Samuel's last will and testament, by his ministry. One of the most incredible things for me is to see what Samuel said to the people. I will never stop praying for you. And one thing I understand about prayer is this. You will not pray for someone you do not like. It's the truth. Samuel had enough reasons to not like these people. As a matter of fact, he was the judge. And they came and said, you know what, Samuel, you're not good enough. Give us a king. So instead of taking it personal here, he's saying, I will not stop praying for you. And what a great truth for pastors, man. What a great truth for us, no matter how people can come against us or say things or backstab or whatever. We are not called to take this personal. Oh, God, thank you for this. 
As a matter of fact, I was reading and I, I noticed that, that um, Moses, like when Moses was complaining about the people of God, God said to Moses, Moses, you will not enter into the promised land. Why? Because you're complaining about my people. How many times do we complain about people? Samuel's preaching. He's still preaching today. But not just to pastors, to all of us, to Christians. How many times do we complain about people? And there is great conviction here for me. There's no doubt. Friends, I need you to observe this with me very carefully. This morning, I want you to see three aspects concerning Samuel's ministry. One, Samuel's or Samuel vindicates his ministry. Samuel vindicates his ministry. We see this in verses 1 through 5 and 2. Samuel calls the people to reflect on the faithfulness of God. We see this in verses 6 through 15 and 3. Samuel calls the people to reflect on God's provision. This is his ministry. His last will and testament is still all about God. It's not pointing a finger at him and say, exalt me. It's still making much of God. I'm thinking about the life of Samuel here, and I cannot help but notice his life in comparison to John the Baptist. I must decrease for him to increase. And even as an old man, Samuel is doing the same thing. I must decrease for him to increase. But join me as we pray together. Father, Speak to our hearts this morning. Open our minds this morning to see the glory of your name. You are wonderful. You are great. And God, you're speaking to your people. The problem is we do not listen. And another problem is we forget. We forget how amazing you are. We forget how you have rescued us. We forget how faithful you are in our lives. And God, what we tend to do is trust in our problems and trust in ourselves instead of trusting in Jesus. God, speak to us, please. Teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not and give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is Samuel vindicates his ministry. You would think with such an amazing judge, as Samuel, there's no need for him to vindicate anything, right? For him to basically justify why he did such a good job. As a matter of fact, if you really think about it, Samuel was the best judge that Israel ever had. I mean, you can think of all the judges before, Gideon and, and, and Barak, and you can think of all these guys and Jephthah. Samuel was by far the best out of all of them, but yet... He is the most humble. So he's going to them and he's saying to them, look at my life. Evaluate my ministry and tell me if I've done anything wrong. But why would Samuel feel the need to vindicate his ministry? Why would he do that? I believe for several reasons. Reason number one, because of the bad examples of judges before him. You got to think about the judges that was before Samuel. Some of them were really, really bad judges. As a matter of fact, the judge that was right above him or before him was who? It was Eli. And we know exactly the life of Eli, but also the lives of Eli's sons, right? Hophni and Phinehas. 
The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, they were worthless men. They took from the people. They abused the people. And Samuel has been a judge. Who knows how long he's been a judge, but now he's going before the people and he's saying, guys, look at my life. Look, look at my life. Look at my example. Have I done anything to disqualify me from being a judge? Pastors today are often scrutinized, perhaps because of someone's spiritual abuse from another church. Maybe, maybe right now, you, you, you came from a church that the pastor spiritually abused you. He used the authority and God's word to, to just pound you, make you feel guilty. Perhaps some of you came out of a situation like this, and what, what, what's quite easy is when you transition to another church to believe that the other pastor will do the same thing to you, right? So, so what Samuel is doing here is saying exactly the same thing. He's like, I know you had bad examples, but let me help you understand, I did not do these things to you. I, I have been good. I've helped you. And even today, I notice even in the, uh, a lot of lost people, they would look at me, and because I'm a pastor, and I don't even make a quarter of what these prosperity pastors make, I, I don't even mention like they do or drive the beautiful cars that they do, but they would, they would lump me into the same category as these prosperity pastors and say, well, all pastors, all they want is money because of the bad example of a few. But here, this is exactly what Samuel understands. So what he's doing is that he's vindicating his ministry. He's justifying it. And he's saying, have I stolen anything from you? Have I taken anything from you? Have I defrauded you? Have I abused you? And the answer is no. No, he's not. And it's good for pastors to do that. It is good for us to put our lives before the flock and say to the flock, look at my integrity. See, have I done anything to cause you not to worship God? And if I have, allow me to repent. But for pastors to do that, we must be humble. We must be humble. But notice very carefully what Samuel says here. Samuel says, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you, and now, behold, the king walks before you. And the Lord used Samuel to anoint Saul as king. So what's the second reason he feels that he needs to justify his ministry before the people? Secondly, Samuel's vindication called the people to look at his manner of life. His manner of life. Look what I am doing. I have been faithful to the things of God. Could we stand before the church and give anyone the opportunity to speak against our integrity? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, talking about elders, but this pertains to every single Christian as well. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That word in the Greek language basically means he cannot be arrested, arrested spiritually. There's no charge against him spiritually. It's the same thing that Samuel is saying to the people in his context. 
He cannot be arrested. Third, Samuel's vindication called the people to look inwardly at their hearts. And this is the beauty of this. Because anytime we're being introspective, anytime we're saying to God, look at my heart, and we're telling people, look at my heart, by default, by looking at someone's heart, you have to look at your heart. It's by default. So to the moment we find in a prayer group someone's being humble and they say, you know what, man, I'm not treating my wife like I ought to. I'm not treating my husband like I ought to. I, I struggle with anger. I struggle with these things. Automatically what happens in all the prayer groups that I've been to, I've been a part of, when that happens, immediately we begin to evaluate our own hearts. Oh, am I doing that? Am I doing the same thing? Am I being the same way? And by Samuel asking him to examine his heart, by default, he's asking them to examine their hearts. Samuel saying that my ministry, I've been faithful to you guys, but guess what? You have not been faithful to God. And this is exactly what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. We agree with you, Samuel. And now we have to look at our own hearts. I like what one particular commentator says, John Woodhouse. The vindication of Samuel meant that the indictment of the people, since they acknowledged that they had no cause other than unbelief for their demand that Samuel be replaced by a king. One Scottish minister, Robert Murray, this is what he says. He says, the most important gift that I can give to the congregation is my personal holiness. Wow. He says, the reason why is that it greatly encouraged believers to believe in the gospel. It gives believers a platform, a solid foundation to continue to pursue the gospel. And we see that. We are called to live holy lives. And just like we notice in the life of Samuel, ministers of the gospel, elders and deacons, we, we are called to live holy lives. And Christians, you are called to live holy lives. Don't just say, well, it's the pastor's job to be holy and the deacon's job to be holy and the leader's in the church's job to be holy. No, we are all called to be holy and to pursue the things of God. I absolutely love Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we are called to do that. We are called to have good examples. Our pastors should be good examples. Our leaders should be good examples. And so was Samuel. So when I read 1 Samuel and I see the ministry of, 1 Samuel, of Samuel, I am extremely excited because there's a model to follow. There's a great model to follow. But notice this as well, the second point. Samuel calls the people to reflect on the faithfulness of God. The purpose behind Samuel's vindication here was not for his own concern, but for the glory of God. The whole purpose here was to call the people to examine his life, then to look at their lives, and then to repent of their sins. 
This is exactly what we see here. These people have, they, they've offended God by the request of a king. We want a king. We want a king. They insulted Samuel for sure because he was the judge. But mostly and more importantly, they insulted God by demanding a king. But notice with me as well the importance of this text. What is Samuel doing here? How does he help them understand the faithfulness of God? He reminds them of several things. One, watch this. Don't miss this and coming closer. He reminds them of their past. He reminds them of their past. Notice with me in verse 7. Look in your Bibles, chapter 12, verse 7. And he said, Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So now he's saying to them, let's, let's look at God's faithfulness in your life. But let's go back to the past and see how God was faithful to your fathers. He was faithful to Israel. And he mentioned about Joseph when Joseph died and Jacob brought the people to Egypt and they were in slavery for such a long time and they cried out to the Lord and God answered their cries by sending Moses and Aaron to rescue them. God brought them through the wilderness and God brought them to the promised land by using Joshua. And yet we find that the people are still rebelling. But don't miss this and look at verse 9. Look at verse 9, friends. Verse 9 gives us the main problem here. And what is the main problem of the people? They forgot the Lord their God. They were struggling with what I call spiritual amnesia. And spiritual amnesia is forgetting the faithfulness of God in our lives. Spiritual amnesia is a problem of unbelief and sin. People who struggle with it consistently see God's mercy and grace only as something they can taste, and then they forget what it tastes like the next day. It's instant gratification. It's a sense of saying, God, I'm in trouble, help me. But then the moment God helps you, you completely forgot that God was the one who helped you. You boast and tell people how amazing you are or how you got out of this trouble or, or how smart you are, but you never give God the praise and the glory. Spiritual amnesia is a major, major itch issue, and we're seeing it in the life of the people of Israel. They want this, they want that, and the moment they get it, they forget about this great God. Can I ask you a question? Are you thinking and reflecting and meditating on the faithfulness of God in your lives? Are you? Five years ago, where were you? Two years ago, where were you? How has God been faithful to you? Don't forget that. Build upon that. Think about it. Meditate upon it. Because by doing that, it will help you overcome the next situation in your life. By doing that, it will give you great faith to withstand any kind of temptation. Friends, trust in God and trust in the work of God. That's why you always find in Scripture, 
that when these gods, whether it's the psalmist or the prophet or even God himself who's speaking directly, he always go back to the fact of what he has done in their lives. He goes back to Abraham. He goes back to Jacob. He, he goes back to Moses. He goes back to Joshua. He always begins by going back in the past. Because God is saying, if I was faithful to these men, your forefathers in the past, will I not be faithful to you? Will I not help you? So he reminds them of the past. Notice this. The people are still not getting it, right? They're still not getting it. They're talking about serving Samuel. So Samuel tells them this, and immediately they're saying, well, pray for us, Samuel. Pray for us that we may serve who? You. That's a problem. Pray for us that we will have a deliverer. But who is the major deliverer? Who is the only deliverer? Who is the most important deliverer? It is God. It is Yahweh. Their faith is not in Yahweh. Their faith is in what they can see. Friends, this is a major issue here. After Samuel is confronting them over and over again, they're saying, pray for us so that we can serve you. No, you should serve God. But not only does he remind them of their past, he reminds them of their present situation. You see it. Their present situation. He tells them before he even gets into that present situation, he tells them of God's rescue mission. That God will send Barak and Jephthah, and God will also send Samuel to help them. But notice who's the one sending these guys. It is God. But right above that, they're saying, Let, pray for us that we may serve you. But God is the one sending them. This is a great, great, great point for us. And don't miss this. Come in closer and get this. Man, I am so thankful. And David Spencer and I were talking about this. I am, I am so thankful for preachers, amazing men of God who preach the word so well, like John MacArthur. Never met MacArthur, but MacArthur is by far one of my, my favorite preacher. He's a guy that I have learned so much under. And when I saw he, how he was preaching expositorily, I was like, whoa, what is this? I want more. I'm thankful for Vody, and I'm thankful for Piper. I'm thankful for Tony Marita. I'm, I'm thankful for Jim Shatter. I'm thankful for all of these men. But this is the problem that we have. I'm thankful for Alistair Begg, right? I, we have a list of men that are preaching the word so well, and we're thankful for it. But this is the problem that we have in America. We lionize these men. In other words, we set them as idols. And we fail to understand that these men are only sent by God. They're only sent by God. We're, we're thankful for their ministry, but we don't worship them. We, we're thankful for what God is doing in their lives, but we don't worship them. And here specifically, we find that this is exactly what Samuel is saying. The Lord sent us to deliver you. The Lord sent us to help you. Friends, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is really good. In verse 12, he helps us see that it was the people's fear of Naash that caused them to ask for a king. 
So we understand now a little bit more of a background. When they went and asked for a king, right, earlier on in 1 Samuel, it was because of Naash. They were so fearful of him. And then they went to Samuel and said, give us a king. And here is a very important truth. Don't miss this. And come in closer and get this. Friends, whatever you fuel grows, but whatever you starve dies. I'll say it again. Whatever you fuel grows, whatever you starve dies. Faith fuels God's peace. But fear fuels unbelief. This is exactly what we see here. These people were very fearful. And their fear led them even more to unbelief and sin. But faith in God, it fuels what? God's peace. Let me help you understand this, right? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfect in love. There's a problem with fear. There's a major issue with fear. But then he talks about the peace of God in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we say to ourselves, hold up, Paul. How can I have this? How can I apply the peace of God? I, I want the peace of God more than ever because I see the economy. I hear rumors of wars. I'm seeing all of these things happening. How can I do this? And this is how you can do this as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you need to turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But if you are a Christian, this is how you can appropriate this by fueling your faith. Fuel your faith. I have a friend of mine who is 70-something years old. He's home. He's retired. All he does is watch Fox News. Watch Fox News. Now, Fox News is better than some other news, but still, Fox News is a problem if that's all we are watching. And he is paralyzed with fear. Paralyzed. Every time I talk to him, man, do you see what Israel's going through? Man, man, you see the government? You see Biden, what he's doing? I can't stand Biden. Biden's going to allow them to bomb us, and we're going to be destroyed. And his blood pressure goes up and up and up. And I'm like, dude, calm down. Calm down. Calm down. It's okay. And he's looking at me. Why are you so calm? Because of the perspective of God's word. Why fear? And this is the issue I find with a lot of people. We are motivated by fear because we fuel it instead of starving it. And the way you starve it is by getting a godly perspective, a heavenly perspective, a perspective that comes from God. How are you doing that? How are you fueling your faith in God? I want to say it this way. Let me say it another way. If you starve your faith, you are fueling your fears. If you're fueling your fears, you are starving your faith. You get it. There are multiple ways to say this. But I hope you get what I'm saying. Because this was a problem with the people of Israel. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinions raised against what? The knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey 
Christ. This is the disposition of a Christian. So when you're hearing rumors of wars, when you're hearing all of these things, when you're seeing that your bank account is depleting even more and more and more, don't turn away from God, but turn to him even more. When you realize that your health is depleting, turn to God. Because we notice the Israelites did the opposite. They fed and fueled their fear instead of their faith. But friends, I think it's very important that we understand this. How can we trust God? Instead of turning to the schemes of the world and our own plans, we must turn to God's plan. God's plan for our life. What is God's plan for our life? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man, the man who what? He delights in the word of the Lord, and he meditates upon the law of the Lord. We are blessed when we find our identity in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But don't miss this as well, friends. I think it's important that you see this. Here specifically, he calls for them to fear the Lord, right? Multiple things that they are called to do. And notice the language here as well. He says they must fear the Lord. He mentioned the fear of the Lord again in verse 24. And then in verse 20, he talks about the unhealthy fear. So when you think about biblical fear, there are two types of fears that we must understand. Don't miss this. The first fear is a reverence for God. The second fear is to be afraid of God. One is good and one is bad. Here specifically, he's asking for what? The good fear, to have reverence in your heart for the Lord. But then in verse 20, we notice that they have the unhealthy fear because Samuel says to them, do not be afraid. Have reverence in your heart, but don't be afraid. Then he says to them that they must serve and obey God. To serve means to die to self. And obedience comes from a love for God. That's why Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, right? So obedience comes from a love for God. They must not rebel against his commandments, and they must follow the Lord and obey the voice of the Lord. If you do these things, God says his hand will not be mighty upon you. Friends, in the same way for us as Christians, when we find ourselves disobeying God, living in sin, God's hand is upon us. As Hebrews chapter 12 mentioned, he disciplines those he loves. Where are you? Are you walking in love by the Spirit and in obedience? Or are you walking in sin today? Do you feel the discipline of God? Will you turn away from that and turn to him? Richard Phillips, this is what he mentions, there is no situation, no problem in which Christians cannot be blessed by God's mighty help. If only we will turn to the Lord in sincere faith, humble ourselves before him as our Lord and God, and renew our commitment to walk in his word. Will you do that today? Will, will you commit yourself to God? Will you say to God, I am willing to obey you and follow you as Christians? And notice will be the third and final. 
Samuel calls the people to reflect on the provision of God. On the provision of God. We see this in verses 16 through 25. But look at verse 16, what he does here. It reminds the people of God's provision, and he calls for them to see a great miracle. He says, it's not even harvest, and we know that rain is not going to come, but therefore I will cry and plead for the Lord to send rain. And that would be an indication that you are sinners before God. Well, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. The Lord heard Samuel's plea, and therefore rain came, and the people are crying out. Notice their response in verse 19. They're crying out for a mediator, which indicated a major problem as well. Instead of them saying, God, we see our sins, forgive us. Now we want to worship you. They're saying, we're fearful of God. Don't, don't speak. You know, we, we don't want to speak to God, but we want you to speak to God for us. This is not the first time that this has happened. In Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the people the Ten Commandments, this is exactly what happened. Here is Moses, and Moses see the pillar of cloud, and in the thickness of the cloud was God's presence. And then Moses approached the cloud where God was, and the people then said to Moses, you go, Moses, but we won't, because we're fearful of God. And then Moses turned to the people and said, do not fear God in the unhealthy way, but fear him in the healthy way and draw near to God. And here they're doing the same thing. Instead of turning to God, who is their great mediator, they're doing the opposite. They're asking Samuel to go, go before them. Notice what else they mentioned here. Instead of saying, my God, they said, your God. You see it. Verse 19, your God. Not my God. Pray for us. Plead that God will have mercy on us. This is your God. Friends, this is a major issue. And second, Samuel reassured them of God's gracious goodwill. I think the centerpiece, the very scripture that holds all of chapter 12 together is verse 22. Don't miss this and coming closer. Get this. We have these conditional statements. If you do this, if you do this, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, and we think into ourselves, man, is the Old Testament all about works? Is it all about works? Is, is God saying you need to do all of these things to be saved? No, that's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is saying, if you are truly saved and there's true faith in you, these things you will want to do. The fact that the Israelites were not doing that, and many of them were not doing that, pointed to the fact that they were not saved. And here we have in verse 22 of chapter 12, reading your own Bibles. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God will never give up on his people. This is unconditional love. And we are thankful for this. So, so as a Christian, as a Christian, our delight is to please our God. Our delight is to obey him. But we don't obey him to be saved. We obey him because we are saved. 
We make much of God because of the work that he has done for us on the cross. And therefore, there is a great desire in our hearts to pursue him. Now, if we're not pursuing him as Christians like we should, God's discipline is upon us. We will experience God spanking us as his children. But friends, don't miss this. Samuel reassures them of God's gracious goodwill. I am so thankful for this. We need that. Because a lot of times we look at the Old Testament, we look at this text, and we're saying, if they do this, 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 and this, then they will be blessed. But listen, there is no way possible they can do this in and of themselves. The gospel is not about just do it and God will give you salvation. The gospel is about you cannot do it, so you trust in God for salvation. And here specifically, we have a great indication of that. God is pleading and God is letting them know, you are my people. They must have faith in me so that you can do these things. And notice with me as well, the third. Samuel acknowledged that their sin, or acknowledged their sin, but directed them to its remedy. He acknowledged their sins. We see this in verses 20 through 21. You have done all evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver from or for they are empty, is what Samuel says. He tells them the problem, and he gives them the remedy here. And what is the remedy? To turn to God. Turn away from their idols and turn to God. To notice their own sins. And fourth, Samuel reminded the people of God's covenant promise. God's covenant promise that God will always have his people. He will always be with his people. This is God's covenant and friends, he has a covenant with us as well. If you have entered into a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, this is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. What a great passage of Scripture we have. So with that said, how can we understand more about the power of God in this passage of Scripture? I want you to observe with me as we observe Samuel and also observe our Lord Jesus Christ. First, the people ask for a mediator on their behalf. Although Samuel is a good guy, he has an amazing ministry, but he is flawed. He's a human being. He sinned. And Samuel is an imperfect mediator. However, we have a perfect mediator. That's Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator that we should go to and cry out, please be merciful to me. I want to serve you. The people are saying this to Samuel, mediate for us. We will serve you. But no, we ought to do this to Jesus because of what Jesus came to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, they says, it mentions, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. It's not Samuel. It's not your nanny. It's not your potter. It's none of them. It's not you. 
It's Jesus. And second, Jesus is a better mediator than Samuel because, here's a good thing, here's a good thing, he never grows old. <laughs> wow. And I get depressed looking at myself in the mirror for several reasons. One in particular is I'm getting old, you know. Golly, all the gray hair and stuff like that. My goodness. Thank God that no one sees me as a mediator because I'm fading away. And I'm still young, by the way, but I feel old. But not our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He never, never fades away. He does not grow old. Does not. And that's the beauty here. He is a better mediator than Samuel. But will you trust in Jesus today? Will you turn to Jesus today? Will you hope in Jesus today? Would you, would you starve your fears and fuel your faith today? Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the word of Christ. We thank you for great examples in Scripture. Let us live for Jesus, O oh Lord, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. His work is finished. And when we place our faith and hope in Christ, that God, we know that he has our back. So God, I pray that we can live for Jesus, that we can fall in love with Jesus, that we can worship Jesus. And God, when we see the economy, when we see the world and rumors of wars, God, our hope is in Jesus, even though our bodies will be taken away from us on this earth. Jesus reigns supreme. He's still King of kings and Lord of lords. So I pray for your people this morning. I pray for our hearts this morning to love Jesus even more. Help us, O oh Lord, because we are weak. In your mighty and precious name, amen.